Scythian, Anisian, Ladinian, Corian, Norian, Rhaetian, Hatangian, Cinemurian, Plansbankian, Tawasian, Ladinian, Majosian, Bithonian, Colovian, Oxfordian, Kimridian, Tithonian. That's the end of the Jurassic. Hang on, hang on. Was there a Spankian in there? There certainly wasn't. Spankian, Tawasian, Spankian, Tawasian. Got my coke. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Ready? No. Oh, wait. Yes. Okay. Go. Have I got my thing in the right place? It's fine. It's a good one. Hello, and welcome to episode 58 of the world famous Tetrapod Zoology Pro. <laughs> <laughs> Poo rats. Prod rats. <laughs> Prod rats. <laughs> I'm James Delaney. I don't know who that is. Uh-huh, well, you'll just have to find out. Who are you? I'm nobody. Drinking game? <laughs> I can't believe you actually do the drinking game. How do you not fall asleep during the day if you do the drinking game? Ah, why would I fall asleep? <laughs> um, <so>. <laughs> <laughs> you, just, you just push on through. I don't have the chance to fall asleep. Days are non-stop blur. Christ, every day. No wonder it's a blur. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, blur is the wrong term. The days, the days are full. Oh, God. So, uh, full you can of see, alcohol. Yeah. Look at, look at, look, I'm so, I've, I've lost weeks of work due to issue, flooring related issues, which has allowed me to redesign the office and uh here i am sat ensconced in the uh the tetzucon towers library slash office and uh, uh those of you who follow me on social media might have seen some of the, the updates and stuff and um one thing left to come which is not a life-size furry dinosaur model it's uh, a display cabinet and uh, and i'll share pictures of that and now i haven't suddenly become rich but i've been given a, a, a display cabinet which is something i've uh, been after for decades um, um yes for new listeners i think we should say that you used to work from the kitchen table right Christ, yeah and now you've got an so. actual room with books and stuff and no desk and proper desk and not other people yeah yeah because unfortunately i've got a family kids and everything and god trying to work with them <laughs> don't get me wrong i love my kids but uh <clears throat> so when i get my office uh sort of in the summertime man we'll just be podcasting <laughs> <laughs> podcasting it up Big stack of cash in the corner. <laughs> and big uh, sh- chaise long over there. <laughs> podcast, podcast from the couch. <clears throat> okay, so... It's pronounced um, Chasey Longuey. <laughs> I've got some good stories about one of those. <laughs> um, um, without further ado... Um, <laughs> uh, so, episode... 58 
There's a whole bunch of other episodes in the archives of people. Hello, new listeners. We are currently on the 9.3 million listeners, so uh, it's going well. I've recently passed over 10.2k Twitter followers. And uh, did you know that once you get over your first 10,000, once you're in the 10k club, as we like to say, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the the curve suddenly suddenly you see a huge because. It's like once I'm not once you get over that little hump, as it were, then they all come in afterwards. It's like yeah, all them spam bots like, <laughs> like flies on a Twitter account. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, um, right, f you. Well, f you too, Darren. <laughs> we have some follow up from uh, a previous episode. I'm sure we have actually lots of follow up. But um, do, you, do, you, do you remember the? Um, <laughs> I'll take another drink. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that'll help. <clears throat> Do you remember we did a um uh a cash for question on um dinosaur soft tissue controversy? Yeah, and we got it completely wrong. <laughs> we spoke at great length about the life appearance of dinosaurs. The question was actually about the controversy as to whether um the claims of blood cells and blood vessels and such were valid. Mm. So what do we do? <laughs> well, here's the thing. I don't know anything about that at all, so uh, that's kind of up to you. Okay, we chose but, to answer a question we knew things about. Yeah. I think we can answer it. And the the answer is... Okay, the issue is there's a bunch of things people have claimed to be blood cells and blood vessels. Are they valid? Um, in some cases, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there was a rec- there was a re- recent paper which which um uh Rob- I know Robert Rice was last author I forget the name of the first author. There was a recent paper that claimed to find microscopic soft tissue traces like protein traces in a like a either late Triassic or early Jurassic sauropodomorph. That one I don't think was valid because. It's one of those things where there's like seven different tests you can perform to see whether you really have got these soft tissues. And you get you might get positive results from one of the tests, but in order to be confident, you have to run like four or five of the tests. And it's no good just saying, yeah, it checks out. It, uh, I'll stop there. I'll stop there. It's quite boring anyway. Um, news from the world of Darren and John. Yeah. Well. Well. Okay. First of all, Here's the news. Yeah. The uh, Tetsu Towers is big news for me. It makes a, it, it makes a lot of difference to everything I do. Have I shared this? What, what do you mean, have you shared it? Have I spoken about this on the podcast? Well, of course you have. The big book. You talk about it just about every episode. But this particular draft of it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, Darren. I don't know oh, whether okay. you talked about that particular draft of it. It's quite this- big. You did the um, drop test a little, a few episodes. With this one? Draft well, it five. looks a bit bigger. Yeah. Draft 5, which this printed version, which is double-spaced. Double-spaced? God's sake, sorry. Is, is printed, it's not printed on single Double-sided. Sheets, double-sided. 933 pages. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is Darren's textbook, the working title of which is the vertebrate fossil record, and more than half of it is fish. More than half of it is fish. Um, this is not the final thing, though. This is just to show the publisher... Um, 
which I'll, I'll mail it off this week, actually. Um, so the final thing is going to be more than 933 pages. They're going to do the drop test? Drop test. So headphone wearers, you have been warned. There's a slight slappy noise coming up. It's not going to be slappy. It is. You, well, you're going to hope for a real big thought. It's going to go... <laughs> that was the most disappointing sound I've ever heard. Do it again. Do it again. <laughs> do it again. <sighs> oh, actually, we got one there. Yep. All right. Although you did kind of have to throw it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So there's that. And uh, yeah, it's coming along. Uh, as normal, my um, unending frustration, uh, one of them comes in the form of the fact that I just can't devote the time on it that I want. I just, I, weeks go by when I don't even touch it. Cause, uh, not because I'm lazy, but because of other work. I'm currently working on a book called Evolution in Minutes, which is great. I'm quite damn enjoying it. Damn that paid it. work. Damn that yeah, paid work. Damn that, pay, damn that what? Oh, not damn paid. That, not paid. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, paying work, yes. Yeah. Damn that paying work. It's a it's a job. I have to take these things on all the time. Uh, I also, okay, also, st- we're still in news from the world of Darren and John, even though it's nothing to do with Darren or John. God's word. God's word or human reason. Uh-huh. An Inside Perspective on Creationism by Jonathan Cain, Emily Willoughby, and T. Michael Kesey of Karen Kesey Corner. Take that, Kesey. Take that, Kesey. There's a Emily Willoughby illustration, which I should frame and put on my wall. Um, yeah, it's this is a, a, a fantastically handsome 370-ish, no, 380-ish, possibly... Oh, 389 pages. Wow. Yep. Um, Glad you got that exactly right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Makes all the difference. Big softback volume, which is written from the perspective of former creationists. And the – or uh, I, think, I, think, I think that's the point. Yeah. Form, four, five former young earth creationists explore the topics of science and biblical stuff. The point of this book is – this, ba- this book is basically written for religious people, and it says that, okay, okay, issues of faith and religion and stuff, that's personal decision. You make whatever you like on that. No one's going to bully you into any particular perspective on atheism or whatever, or godlyism, religiosity. But this says that that stuff that you hear from your uh, from um, young earth creationist people, your Ken Hams and stuff, um basically it's all lies <laughs> it's not just not just alternative interpretations alt mm. facts it is lies and this is why okay there isn't fundamentally oh i always feel a little bit dirty when i say this but i'm going to say it anyway there isn't fundamentally a um a contradiction between religion and uh, science because to be frank there kind of is but let's ignore that for now um and this <laughs> and this says that this says that believe what you like but this is actually what we actually know about the evidence for human evolution this is what we actually know about the evidence for dinosaurs and birds this is what we actually know about uh, the dating of the earth is there actual evidence for a biblical flood that kind of stuff so um i think it's i think it's fantastically well done it's a really nice book it looks great it reads very well and it covers it covers these particular topics in like the among the best ways they've ever been covered i mean like 
look, just check out that. Okay, so this is the section on the origin of birds. Okay, you got like your Greg Paul thing there because they're talking about historical views on, uh, and then we've got loads of beautiful Emily Willoughby illustrations and models of uh, flight evolution and. I think that I think that even okay. So, like I say, this book is written with a specific aim in mind. Uh, it's written for people of a religious bent, mm-hmm. but uh, but even if that's not what you want to read it for, even if that's not you know what you want to hear about, it's still worth checking out. So, so I strongly recommend it. God's Word or Human Reason. Um, <clears throat> I have no useful publication data on me, uh, but. I'm sure if you Google it, you can. Uh, oh, so, yeah, what, most yeah, things are on Amazon, aren't they? I mean, I'm sure it is. Yeah, published by uh, Inkwater Press, and um, yeah, I should have done my homework and checked out how much it costs and stuff like that. But it's not going to be very expensive. <clears throat> I would guess less than forty dollars. Cool. So maybe, maybe we'll come back to it, and we have come come back to it, and we have spoken at some point about having. Uh, Emily Willoughby, one of the authors, as a as a, as a guest on the podcast because mm. yep because yep. it's been wall to wall boys so far. <laughs> that's that's true. I think we've only ever had two guests though, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, hundred well, percent. Yes, that's true. Hundred percent sausage fest. Yeah, and. Um, the, part of the problem is it would find it difficult enough just to get us two on the podcast, let alone three of us. Um, okay. Yeah, I think we should come back to it. Um, yeah. But, so let's uh, let's let's shake this up a bit and do a cash for question. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> um. So, oh, you still haven't put the name in on this one, Darren. Just. Well, we need a name to do the cash, to Maybe do the they question. Didn't supply a name. <laughs> All right, leave it, leave it, and I'll find it. Leave okay. It, this is from Sam Barnett. Sam. Sam asks nocturnal hematophages. Hematophages? I would say hematophages. Hematophages? <laughs> Hematophages? <laughs> Tend to be bigger than diurnal bats, moths versus mosquitoes. Okay, does that make sense? Uh, no. Is that why there are no vampire hummingbirds? Hashtag spec zoo. <clears throat> Nocturnal hematophages tend to be bigger than diurnal. So, yeah, interesting question. Thank you, Sam. Basically. Oh, I see. Yes, I see what the other question. Yep, go. Basically. Right, go. Basically, um, he is. Uh, Sam is po- <clears throat> the, the the data pool that we have when considering this question isn't great, is it? So, in other words, we know that. So, we, we're talking about um, blood feeding animals, which are, I think, generally called sanguivores. So, we've got vampire bats, like three or four species of nocturnal vampire bats that eat blood, and Sam is saying that they are bigger than the. Uh, sanguivores that fly in the daytime because there's vampire. Well, hold on, vamp- there's vampire moths, but they're nocturnal. So there you go. The cotton breaks down immediately. And mosquitoes, but are mosquitoes? I, th- I thought mosquitoes mostly did their 
blood feeding in darkness. I don't you mostly get bitten by mosquitoes in the evening. I'm pretty sure you do. Yeah, I thought at sort of dusk, but that could just be. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That's funny. I don't know. So I have to question the the general uh, cut of your jib. Is that <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> What's that thing? What's that thing? The... Okay, I'm not sure if the tack, the angle on this question is exactly right because uh, I'm Lots not sure. Lots of sailing metaphors here. <laughs> well, <laughs> if we splice the main brace this way, then. Uh, um... Ooh. <laughs> Sorry. Oh crap! Jesus. Sorry, sailors. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that just doesn't. Uh, I, I don't think. I don't know. I don't know if there's a. I don't know if there's a uh, like a dichotomy here between nocturnal blood feeding animals and diurnal blood feeders. But let's say there is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's say there is that the vampire bats fly in the night. But you, but you don't. I'm pretty sure you don't. So the blood feeding moths are nocturnal moths, and mosquitoes. I'm pretty sure mosquitoes are. Mm, no, that's not true. They fly anytime, don't they? Yeah. They feed, yeah. Whenever. When. Okay. All right. So, so I think this is more to do with the fact that there are blood feeding bats, and that bats ancestrally are bats predominantly are nocturnal. I don't think that the 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 fact that there are blood feeding bats that fly at night is because it's better to be a blood feeder if you fly at night um on the other hand you, you can un- understand there's some advantages to it because um uh blood feeding in bats a lot of their stuff is kind of done secretively yeah. furtively they sneak up to animals that are resting or or even sleeping and uh <clears throat> yeah scrape away i think that's probably what's going on there right that it's a good time to feed on animals in that sort of secretive sneak up on them and sit on them and drink their blood sort of way. So I think I think in that way you could put it as like it's adaptively advantageous to be feeding on big animals in the darkness, but I don't think that's why it evolved in the first place. I think it evolved because there's a group of bats that could become blood feeders. I yep. don't think they became blood feeders and then advantageously became nocturnal blood feeders. I think they're nocturnal because they're bats. Uh, but, and for several reasons, and this, this is a different issue, for several reasons, bats are mostly, you know, predominantly not completely, but mostly doing their stuff at night time for thermoregulatory reasons and for reasons to do with predation and competition from birds and other animals and stuff. Um, so if blood feeding was to evolve in another group, um, I don't think so. What I'm getting at here is I don't think they would necessarily become blood feeders and then become nocturnal, which is the sort of implication from the question that, that, that it would be good to become nocturnal if you're a blood feeder and there is a present for this or is that the right term i mean there is a there is actually like relevant case studies we can look at because there are there are blood feeding birds there are um um uh, finches there's one of the galapagos um slender billed finches which uh, regularly feeds on blood from seabirds and uh, oxpeckers. Oxpeckers also routinely feed on blood from uh, animals in parasitic fashion, and they are diurnal. So they're not specialised doing it 100% of the time. Yeah. But um, they're doing it enough for it for for in some populations of the whichever of the Galapagos finches it is that feeds on seabird blood. It's hang on, doing hang on. How, how do these Galapagos finches do that? They jump on the backs of 
uh, nesting or roosting, uh, resting uh, boobies and other seabirds, and they just peck away at their wings. And uh, it seems at the moment that this is a well. Uh, what I was going to say there is, it seems like it's a young behaviour, and the seabirds haven't like got any response to it. They literally just sit there and go, "Oh, there's a, <laughs> a small bird pecking my <laughs> exactly. wings." Exactly. Why do they do? And, why do they let them do that? They do. They let them do it, and the little birds are like covered in blood, going cheep cheep cheep, pecking away at the bases bases of the secondary feathers normally, and um, blood going everywhere, and and feeding on the blood. And um, well, that's really weird, isn't it? I mean, the <laughs> it's not the feeding that I find odd; it's the lack of response that I find odd. There, there's a documentary. There, there are two well-known uh, Galapagos finch experts, the Grants, Doctor and Doctor Grant, and uh, they made a documentary about the Grant twins, the Grant, <laughs> no, their um, husband and uh, wife, I think, and um, um. There's they they made a film about some of the some of the Galapagos finches and there's one part of one of the documentaries where they get um one of them gets like scraped up on rocks quite badly they've got shorts on naked legs and there's blood everywhere and they sit down have a rest and sure enough one of the finches comes along and it's like drinking human blood and uh, of course they're letting it. it's like wow cool <clears throat> not gonna not gonna catch anything off a finch are you? Um, <clears throat> Maybe you are. I don't know if it's been feeding from seabirds, but um, yeah. So it seems to be opportunistic, and it seems that um, uh, sanguivory, sanguinivory, vampirism, whatever you want to call it, uh, in at least some of these animals is uh, opportunistic. Um, there's various models for how vampirism, uh, how blood feeding evolved in vampire bats, mm. and mo- most models posit it as. Um. Uh, oh God, what's the term? The thing when the thing when you ha- you're not exaptation. Uh, it's, it's yeah, it's an acceptation. It's uh, it's it started opportunistically. Like they were attracted to, <clears throat> they were attracted to like insects. They were feeding on insects around festering wounds, and then they started feeding on tissues, or they were adapted for fruits. And then it's not much of a jump to be able to pierce fruit and and eat um, fluids from fruits and then make the transition to feeding on tissue. Because there are other animals uh, that are, are frugivores but will switch to like animal tissue, piercing animal tissue in the same way, uh, including some other bats. There's uh, some like fruit bats that will that, have, that will eat animals. Uh, the hammer-headed uh, fruit bat, for example, in Africa. Huh. Um, does this even kills chickens on occasion so um mm, okay so that was all over the place Uh, yeah okay so to answer the question is that we don't really think there's anything in this size thing and why are there no vampire hummingbirds well yeah they just aren't (laughs) (laughs) hummingbirds aren't adapted for piercing of course are they no no they're not adapted for piercing um, even though there are some that have like serrated um, bill tips, they uh, they don't seem to do anything that involves. Yeah. Although it looks like an excellent blood straw, it's just getting in there it's in not. the first place is the tricky thing. Yeah. See, insects have done this on lots of occasions. There's lots of uh, plant feeding insects that seem to have made the transition because they got like proboscis-like or beak-like mouth parts. Um, even bees, which have got like a big stiff tongue, mm-hmm. um, 
they they've uh, made the transition to carry and feeding and they can also kill other animals um like i don't know if you've ever seen bee cannibalism in the in the nest where they got to destroy larvae and stuff but um they can do amazing things with their tongues and i just the hummingbird <clears throat> bill doesn't work in the same way um no um very small animals probably have an advantage but that's probably a physics problem in that it's just it might be easier to adapt your uh, proboscis to do different things if you're very very small it might also be that hummingbirds are now locked into this um, requirement for super high energy sources and yes. that they can't make a transition to something like blood because blood is relatively nutrient poor for its volume, right? It's mostly water. You have to get a lot of it to um, yeah, to survive. And maybe a bat can do that. Maybe a frugivorous bat can do that. In fact, maybe I hadn't thought of that before, but maybe that's a good a, a, a good reason for thinking that vampire bats most likely originated from fruit eaters rather than insectivores, because uh, frugivores are generally you know animals that eat plants get by with relatively little you know um, energy intake, and, and, unless it's like sugar rich. But fruit um, is very sugar rich. It's incredibly uh, sugar rich. Some are, some aren't. Uh, it depends how ripe it is, doesn't it? Because a lot of fruit, yeah, of a lot of fruit eating bats eat eat, uh, eat um, high fiber fruits before they're properly ripe. Mm -hmm. So they might be eating stuff that isn't particularly energy rich. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that needs. Yeah, you you could have. A yeah, point. I need to hummingbirds. I think are probably fairly locked in because it's not just energy; it's also sugars, right? So they're probably yeah. they're using it almost immediately after. Oh, consuming yeah, yeah. it and yeah. whatever energy you get from blood is going to be slow release and you know yeah so it's, you know, they're, they're very specialised on high energy quick release sugars yeah, yeah. <clears throat> alright answered what do we want to do next well, there's more news there's more news there is in case people hadn't realised this is a Chaos Reigns episode right Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, sh uh, do you want to move on to the news thing, then? We have got a few other questions. Yeah, yeah, we'll, do, we'll, we'll intersperse them. We'll intersperse yeah. them. Okay. Uh, news from the world of news, briefly. Yeah. Where should we start? Well, uh, I thought I meant I meant to seg into having mentioned Oxpeggers. I thought, haha, that gives me an opportunity to mention this amazing Oxpegger study. A paper published in a journal... <laughs> called Journal of Threatened Taxa, or JTT, as we say in the biz. Um, Are they about like, to be synonymized? What? Uh, what, Oxpeckers? No, Taxa. Oh, journal, <laughs> journal of Imminently Synonymized Taxa. <laughs> oh, the Taxa is threatened! The oh, name is going away! Journal of Threatened Taxa, JTT. Uh, a a multi-author paper by Diogo Verissimo and colleagues, record number of yellow-billed ox peckers, Bufagus africanus, Linnaeus, 1766, Aves perceriformis, Bufagus, ha, ha, no, no sternity for you, ox peckers, um, foraging on a single host. And this paper uh, describes... A, oh, dear, come on, Foxit Phantom. Um, uh, they basically it, it's, they describe a case where a single giraffe 
in uh, Chobe National Park in Botswana was photographed with, I think, I don't want to read the whole paper, but I think it was 56 oxpeckers on it. And uh, they've got, yeah, okay, it had as many as 60. So they estimated 56, somewhere around about 60. Um, uh, The the photographs of this uh, giraffe crawling with oxpeckers kind of gross <laughs> it's like oh the look of the look of animals with lots of other little animals crawling all over them um i've written at length about oxpeckers on tetrapods orgy in the distant past i mean going back to some of the um going back to like early version two stuff so oh. 2007 2008 that kind of time frame and um i've been fascinated by this body of work which documents the behavior of oxpeckers on different uh, host species and general wisdom is that oxpeckers are the buddies the buddies of big mammals and they you know they climb on and they sort of you know get parasites out of your fur and snip away bits of dead skin and stuff and on some animals on some individuals or some species that is how they behave but on others they are uh, they're actually parasites so they actually like uh, you know like drink blood um, like open wounds, keep wounds open, which is to the detriment of the animals they're feeding from, that kind of stuff. Mm. So um, they seem to do different things on different hosts. So it may be commensalism or mutualism on some species, but in others it may definitely be parasitism. So when you see uh, a, a giraffe crawling with 56 oxpeckers, it's like, are they definitely... <laughs> giraffe <laughs> cuddle. <laughs> got a lot of little 56? bugs or something. Like, so the, the size relationship between the oxpecker and the giraffe is like, you know, a mouse on you. So would you like 60 mice crawling on you right now? <laughs> Maybe you would, but I don't know. I don't know. Okay. So that so that's that that's that paper. Um, Anchiornis laser study. Yep. Yeah. Uh, let me just get. I always feel it's better if we have the names of the authors and stuff to hand. That is true. That is better. And what do you know? I haven't got the paper with me here. So <laughs> I remember. Michael Pittman, who I know is on the authorship, but he's not the first author, and I've forgotten the name of the first author. But this is a study published in one of the highfalutin um, top-tier journals, like one of the sort of Nature Science Brigade type things. Can't remember which one. And um, this team they used laser fluorescence uh, on Anchiornis, which is a, uh, I think it's a Jurassic uh, feathered near bird Manoraptoran, and Oh my god. Oh my god, the results. <laughs> the unbelievable. I mean, this is already Anchiornis, this is already an animal that's got like not any complete feathering preserved, but it's got melanosomes preserved. So people have written quite a lot in the past about the probable uh patterning and coloration on the feathers of this animal. But this laser fluorescent stuff reveals well, amazing details of uh integument so like the little scaly foot pads on the toes the full details of the soft tissue outline around the limbs um the small feathers the patterning of the small feathers all over the uh, arms and stuff and um now yeah is yeah do, do you want to say anything before i say the next thing no you say you can you go well yeah okay all right fine the thing the thing i would say is that Oh my god, it's amazing. Look at all this information. It looks fantastic. 
and this is good science and I'm glad someone did it or done it whatever's the whatever's the rightest kind of English there done done uh, always go uh, with done when in doubt done, done. D-U-N <laughs> however uh, and, and I'm not this is not <laughs> this isn't negative this isn't down a Darren um, or anything but um, it's like everything that they report is like stuff we either already knew or we were pretty sure it was the case anyway so yeah some of the stuff they're saying and you know again don't mean any disrespect to anyone but you'll see like a like a journalist write about this and sometimes even a, a science journalist or a paleontological journalist and they'll be going oh my god they found evidence for a propatagium they found a propatagium it's like well you do know that we thought that these animals had propatagia anyway and people had in fact we discussed it probably a couple of years back now this claim of a propatagium in Caldipteryx and um, yeah. I think we said and I hope we said and the paper that paper involved some of your birds and not dinosaurs people so I, I know I was certainly a little bit harsh towards that research but I hope what we said is that the, if uh, a propatagium for those of you who don't know it's a skin membrane present between the shoulder and the wrist uh, most typically present in flying animals, bats, pterosaurs, but birds have it as well, and these non-flying Manoraptoran dinosaurs have it. And if Chordipteryx, which is an Oviraptorosaur, has got one, well, the position of the Oviraptorosaur lineage with respect to the bird lineage indicates that the Probatagium was present long before birds were. It's present more widely in this group of theropods, the Manoraptorans, or specifically the par, uh, not not Paravians, because that's Dromaeosaurs, Triodontids, and birds. Um, the uh, Peneraptorans, Peneraptor is Oviraptorosaur lineage plus Paravian lineage. So, yeah, Propatagium, people are already saying Propatagium is probably quite a widespread thing in uh, Peneraptoran, Manoraptorans. So to find one to say, oh my God, here's a really well-preserved one, Nangionis, it's like, yeah, that's fantastic. But there are other fossils that have it and we've already thought it's there. So, um, yeah. Not that it's it's not it's not ever bad to have things you think confirmed by better data, right? But um, yeah, I mean, I guess I was going to make a similar point. Actually, yeah, it's it looks amazing and it is incredible to have such detail on a fossil, but it actually hasn't shown us anything. Well, maybe some small details, but there's not really any surprises here. No. Um. You know, I haven't had to suddenly go back and change all my pictures of feathered dinosaurs because of this. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, it's very cool, but it's sort of confirmation rather than surprise. Yeah, and surprise there's, there's is a, always more fun. That, uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a few small details that weren't necessarily known before, like the way the, the, the feathers on the propatagium, I don't think they're arranged in tracts. They seemed, from what I remember, down at the paper in front of me, from what I remember, they're sort of randomly distributed. Uh, bird feathers tend to be arranged in distinct tracks, but the uh, arrangement of the secondary feathers um, was like like modern birds and stuff. So, okay, so yeah. uh, move on. Um, Mauriciosaurus. Mauriciosaurus. Now, plesiosaurs are all the rage right now. There's just a couple of things happen to have come together, and it means that oh my god, aren't plesiosaurs really exciting? Um, and a thing we talk about a lot whenever discussing the life appearance of plesiosaurs is what their skin texture was like. And nobody has really known in the past. Um, 
and um, there have been a few ideas. Some people have said that they most likely had a smooth skin for hydrodynamic reasons. Other people said, don't be stupid, they're reptiles, they should have a scaly skin. There's one anecdote from uh, the late Arthur Cruikshank, who did a lot of work on plesiosaurs, and he said that in a... Um, uh, a plesiosaur from New Zealand called Kaiwikia, or supposedly pronounced properly Kaiwikia, but written Kaiwikia. And Arthur Cruikshank always said it Kaiwikia. Anyway, uh, Arthur said that that specimen had um, skin, uh, and the skin consisted of like widely spaced circular nodules, which would be very odd for a streamlined marine animal. Um, Mauriciosaurus is a, uh, a polycotylid plesiosaur from Mexico, and I can't find the paper. So I'm just going to have to go what I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, we've discussed this specimen before because we are well ahead of the curve here, John. Because mm-hmm. um, this fossil, before it was named, because the paper naming has just come out, um, it was first photographs of the specimen were published probably about... 2015, 2014, in a book on Mexican fossils. And um, and it's not a very big polycotylid. Polycotylids are short-necked plesiosaurs, so they're what would typically be called pliosaurs. But there's been thinking for a long time that they're more closely related to some of the longer-necked groups like the elasmosaurids and cryptoclidids. And that's mostly confirmed by new studies. Polycotylids are really, yeah, they're like sort of pliosauromorph plesiosaurs but they're not close to other short necks pliosauromorph plesiosaurs which we covered this whole mess back in probably episode two or something you remember yeah. it well right yeah it was horrible <laughs> it's your idea uh, <laughs> hang um, on hang on was it yeah you said i want to i want to i want to get to the nitty-gritty i want to get to the, the bottom of this plesiosaur nomenclature stuff i Go. don't that does not sound like me and I've been talking for like half an hour, and you said, I want to hear more, I want to hear more. Like, what? <laughs> so, what's the difference, Darren? What's the difference between plesiosaurs, plesiosaurians, pliosaurus, plesiosaurus, plesiosaurus, and pliosaurus? Go. <laughs> more, more detail, more, further down the rabbit hole. I remember it well. I'll drink to that. Fake drinking noises. Um, oh, yeah. Mauritiosaurus. Polycotylids range in size from, say, like, you know, say, two meters long to, like, 10 meters long, eight meters long, whatever. Mauritiosaurus isn't particularly big. I think it's about this size. Oh, yeah. One and a half half meters. Uh So you should imagine a a short-ish necked, but a mid-necked, long-jawed plesiosaurian. And there's a reason why we're now calling them plesiosaurians. Um... (laughs) And, uh, yeah, <laughs> I love that when things mean that we have to say even longer names. Yeah, um, we um, we spoke about it before because the specimen has got uh, a dark tissue, soft tissue outline around it, uh-huh. and we were particularly excited about it because the tail section of the animal, the relatively short tail. Uh, the soft tissue impressions showed that the tail wasn't just like the, the soft tissue. The limits of the soft tissue weren't similar to the bony size of the tail. The soft tissues were much wider. There was like big, thick wadge of tissue on either side of the tail skeleton. Um, so basically, the back end of the animal uh, is sort of like conical towards the tip of the tail rather than the pelvis yeah. and then the narrow tail. 
Yeah, so the whole, it's just sort of one big curve from the shoulder to the tip of the tail. There's not really, you know, you can't really see the hips or, yeah, there's no, yeah. So we covered this way, way back, and um, our friend Memo Kozman was inspired to produce a nice illustration based on this information. And, of course, now everyone's seen it, now the paper's out. Uh, And so that's cool. So um, streamlining soft tissue, um, uh, more evidence against shrink wrapping in fossil reptiles. But um, the specimen also has extensive soft tissue uh, God's sake, skin. The specimen also has loads and loads of skin all over the place and scaly skin, loads and loads of scaly skin. And the scales are small and uh, rectangular and arranged in both longer, longitudinal and transverse bands. So fully scaly uh, plesiosaur. Mm-hmm. So how cool is that? So uh, this is, this helps. It's some... Um, but interestingly, similar to what you have said about dinosaurs, is that the scales are tiny. So the animal's one and a half meters long, and the scales are like—I don't think any of them are bigger than a centimeter. They're probably less than that even. So um, if you if you like stare at its skin up close, yeah, see scales. But um, uh, how this relates to its color pan is a good question. Don't know the answer to that. But. Um, what it means for the animal as seen from any distance it's uh you might see uh, you might see some like um uh as you do with fish sort of speckling or like glinting that indicates that there's like scales arranged in bands Mm. but um otherwise it's gonna look kind of smooth it's not gonna have uh yeah it's sort of more like you get it it's more of a texture than seeing individual scales it feels like it's made of a different looks like it's made of a different material but it doesn't you can't see individual scales yeah mm. i mean you can get this from just getting a photo of the a right lizard from the right distance right can you see the scales no no you think of the parenti a big monitor lizard for example classic example you see that really nice sort of hooping color scheme but um yeah so this is a this is very cool um and uh, the paper, oh, I, I know Dino Frey is involved, uh, but uh, oh, again, God, why is this happening? The Anchiornis paper, by the way, has a lot of authors, so I forgive you for... Just say, that, well, the fir- what's the first first author? Zhao Li Wang. Well, there you go. So Wang et al. Yeah. Um, and I can't, I can't find the... Mauritius. Oh, yes, I can. <laughs> oh, maybe things aren't as bad as all that. Oh, no. There they are. <laughs> um, yeah, Dino Frey. So, uh, Erberhard, Erberhard Frey's first author. So, Frey et al. Published in that well-known journal, Boletin de la Sociedad, Sociedad Geologica Mexicana. Um, they didn't want to go for a, one of those sexy journals. <laughs> <laughs> A new polycatalan plesiosaur with extensive soft tissue preservation from the early late Cretaceous of northeast Mexico. Oh god, why can't we have a middle Cretaceous? Because <laughs> not what the rocks say. The it's, geologists say it's kind of arbitrary, isn't it? Well, if you really no, it's not arbitrary. It's because there's always been a distinct uh, lower and upper Cretaceous in the rock record, and there isn't a distinct. There's like a clear, distinct sequence of lower Cretaceous rocks, 
then there's a clear, distinct sequence of upper Cretaceous rocks, and there's no. So thing- what happened then? What happened in the middle of the Cretaceous that made that discontinuity in the rocks? There's like a, a major change in, uh, like, you know, sedimentation regimes and paleo environments and stuff like that. You go from. Oh Christ! Don't make me talk about geology and stratigraphy. There's all this. The, the lower Cretaceous. Bear, bear, and bear in mind, this is predominantly based on you know Western Europe, France, Germany, the UK, and such. You've got this like sequence that involves mostly freshwater and lagoonal mudstones and sandstones that that become increasingly marine, and then you go through marls and calcareous layers, and then eventually into chalk, and then the chalk is open marine stuff, and that. Oh, why does that? Why does that? That ends at the end of the Albion, and then you've got this jump into more terrestrial. Yeah, there's. So, if paleontology had or geology had started in, say, South America or Australia, yeah, or Japan, yeah, would we have different? I mean, I know there are some worldwide ones, like I believe yeah. the end of the Cretaceous. You've got the Iridium layer, things like this. Yeah, but are these discontinuities um, worldwide, and why would that be the case? I mean, I can imagine sometimes when there's a worldwide event, volcanism, meteorite impacts, but I just can't see why. Well, of course you can. Sea level change. It's like major major changes in sea level. Mm. So, like, like the the middle of the Jurassic and the lower, uh, well, most of the Cretaceous are both times of unprecedented high sea stands unprecedented high sea level and so i guess i guess i was wondering is that so that change happens rapidly then because if it happened uh, over 20 million years there wouldn't be a discontinuity there'd just be a gradual shift as there is always a gradual shift yeah it's not 10 million years it's less than a million years and i think in some places it's not even preserved so your your first point that if history was different and our system was based on something from another part of the world i think in cases that's definitely true but in other cases it's not because some of these things are generally global so the general pattern that you see in cretaceous um the this transition from to increasingly like oceanic uh oceanic increasingly marine sedimentation stuff i think that's pretty global because because i know that uh, there's this like long-standing debate as to why are we talking about this? This is <laughs> it's a good tangent. We never talk about this. Okay, so there's this long discussion as to people and this is using- the, what you did your degree in. It is doesn't mean I like it or know much about it. But there's <laughs> this there's these fossils from fossils from like South America and Australia that were interpreted on the basis of how like their age at the age of the strata the age of the fossils was based on how they matched to the european sequence yeah. and it's like well these rocks look like the european rocks that we've dated on other reasons as being say from the aptian so these australian ones or these brazilian ones probably are that age as well and then during the uh, 20th century you've got people saying are you sure about that why do you actually think that and then them testing it and doing lots lots of work obviously the 20th century is when you know um geomagnetism and isotopes and all that stuff is devised and brought to bear on these issues and uh, they mostly have broadly confirmed the patterns 
with a bit of slop, obviously, you know, a bit of slop in Georgie being anything, you know, five to ten million years. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a big deal. Yeah, we're, we were ten million years out on that one. Well, so what? Yeah. It's only ten million years, <laughs> which is hilarious when you apply it to any other problem. But, um, uh, which again links to stuff I was listening to the other day when we were talking about the radiation of selenodons we were saying wow the radiation of selenodons was post-Cretaceous Erebar 10 million years <laughs> <laughs> so so yes, yes there, so the point is in the rock record there isn't a dis- there is a distinct lower Cretaceous and a distinct upper Cretaceous but there isn't a tripartite division whereas there is for some other units like the Jurassic the Jurassic has got dis- a distinct lower a distinct middle and a distinct upper and are the terms we use for the geological ages which are different from the terms we used for the strata the, the the names for the ages are based on the strata so as in we talk of there being a lower cretaceous which was laid down in early cretaceous times and we talk of an upper cretaceous which was laid down in late cretaceous times so for that reason there's a cretaceous there's an early Cretaceous and late Cretaceous, and there isn't a distinct middle Cretaceous. Although we still do say middle Cretaceous with a lowercase m. Yeah, it was in the middle of the Cretaceous. That's, That's because the Cretaceous is so long compared to... It's huge. And yeah. so it needs to be more subdivided. We could go to... It is. It is. I know, I know, it's, it's, but that's too many. Ideally, we want four, I would say. <laughs> Although but we you- don't have nice words for that, so... Yeah, the, uh, yeah we've got just, stages. Stages yeah, I know, are great. But no one can remember all the stages. Excuse me, Cenomanian, Turonian, Asian can remember it. Nobody the, the, who's anybody can remember all the stages. This, okay, so the Mesozoic is okay. One system, not the Universal system, not the Gradscene system, but the Mesozoic: Scythian, Anisian, Ladinian, Carian, Norian, Rhetian, Hertangian, Cinnamurian, Plunsbankian, Tuarsian, Ladinian, Bajosian, Bithonian, Calovian, Oxfordian, Kimridgian, Tithonian. That's the end of the Jurassic. Hang on, hang on. Was there a Spankian in there? There certainly wasn't. There's a, spa- there's a Spavian in the Triassic. And then the Cretaceous is Beriasian, Valanginian, Hauterivian, Beremian, Aptian, Albian, Cenomanian, Tyronian, Coniacian. See, now you've made me lose my... Tri- Santonian? Beriasian, Valanginian, Hauterivian, Beremian, Aptian, Albian, Cenomanian, Tyronian, Coniacian, Santonian, Campanian, Maastrichtian. And then you're into the Cenozoic, which is Danian, Thanesian, Oppression, Lutetian, Bartonian, Pribonian... Uh, I've forgotten some of the Miocene ones, but there's a Cerevalian and Langian in there, and then Zanclian, Placensian, uh, to- uh, the, the, the Pliocene, Pleistocene, Holocene. Um, <laughs> um, what was I saying? Before, <laughs> oh, no, before I you did. made me do that. <clears throat> <laughs> um, yeah, it was something about the Cretaceous being long. Oh yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, you don't. You want more subdivisions because you can't remember the stages. Well, stages. Uh, uh, when we, given that we mostly talk about, write about, illustrate, whatever, Mesozoic animals, and in some cases Cenozoic animals, they tend to be stage specific. Sure. So it's never it's never good enough for us to say Tyrannosaurus is from the Cretaceous, and even saying Tyrannosaurus is from the Upper Cretaceous or Late Cretaceous, that's not good enough because, as John has just said or implied, that's a time span of like. 60 million years or something stupid you want to pin this animal down to the like two or three million years when it was around but and for that stage stages are great um because dinosaur species and also other species of vertebrates tend oh god i forgot about the fish 
<laughs> okay, tetrapods, those tetrapods, they tend not to last for more than a stage. So in that case, it's good to say Tyrannosaurus and or Tyrannosaurus rex is a Maastrichtian dinosaur. That works. So you've got a few stages that are annoyingly long, like the Aptian and, and Albion. Mm. But in that case, you can say, well, it's it's a late Aptian or upper Aptian animal and because they've got subdivisions as well. But, yeah, there's too many of them. Can't it's remember that. Well, make up your mind. There's you too many. To- yeah, I want, I want, as I said, I want three. <laughs> <laughs> what, for the whole of time? For Cretaceous. Oh, well, Two is not enough. Three would be fine. It's, but they still wouldn't. You're still okay if it was three. Instead equi- of this um, late early Cretaceous nonsense, <laughs> <laughs> or early late Cretaceous, which you said by the way, because you need something like that. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Early late Cretaceous, horrible, horrible. Aptian Albion. <laughs> An Aptian Albion animal. It's from that small chunk of twenty million years or whatever. From the AA. Yep. Okay. And it always it always bugged me, and it still does somewhat when you see a geological uh, a diagram representing geological time, and in order to make the different uh, sections of time look like uh, um, to make to make an attractive table or something, people make the different sections of time equivalent. Now, in the Cenozoic or Tertiary, whatever you want to call it. You got not stages, but your um, uh, periods or what's the systems: Paleocene, Eocene, Ligocene, Miocene, Pliocene, Pleistocene, Holocene. That's seven. So people put in seven big blocks. But then in the Mesozoic, of course, you've only got Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. So they make it look like the Cenozoic, the last 60, 66 million years with seven blocks, is longer than the Mesozoic. And it's like, whoa, excuse me, the Cretaceous is longer <laughs> than the whole of the Cenozoic. As is well known, I hope to anyone who knows anything about Earth history, there is more time between a late Jurassic dinosaur and a late Cretaceous one than there is between a late Cretaceous dinosaur and now. Yep. There's like more time between Stegosaurus and Tyrannosaurus than there is between Tyrannosaurus and today. Um, which, yeah, that's, that's, I, I would like to think that's well known among our people, but uh, among your general. What's very common when you're illustrating the history of time on Earth is that the problem is that all this stuff is relatively recent to the age of the Earth. And therefore, oh, yeah. they tend, people tend to do sort of weird logarithmic things where, you know, the spiral diagram's very common, yeah. isn't it? Right, just so that you can get more space up when there's interesting stuff happening. Yeah, all that. All that <laughs> as opposed to, analogy, you know, year nothing, two billion, still yeah. no fossils. Probably a life, <laughs> but still no fossils. <laughs> the, the, the clock of life that you see in lots of, lots of um, books and stuff, they do tend to say that, you know, <laughs> that, that if, if the whole of life on earth uh, no, not life on earth the whole of the history of the earth is a, is a is portrayed as a as a clock of 12 hours then um excuse me let's get rid of that for cool um then nothing happens until like i don't know like life, life appears probably around seven o'clock in the evening or something yeah. and um then obvious life appears at about I accidentally put it on voice thing and someone was talking to me. Um, I don't like the clock uh, yeah. thing. I don't find it very helpful. No. I don't, well, it's it's I all over the place. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. 
just a flat representation does it just as well for me. You know, draw a line. This is how much space this takes up. The clock thing doesn't. Uh, yeah, it's, it's people thinking, oh, this is a clever way to explain it to the layperson. Yeah. Another thing I've heard is imagine your arm stretched out like this and then life like life appears here yeah. and then humanity appears here and then and then the whole of the 20th century is like one fingernail shaving or something but all those things they seem contrived they're probably highly inaccurate and um they also they're all based on this um this assumption that we need to like that we need to somehow put the reign of humanity into context as if it's a <laughs> as if it's a big deal <laughs> Because another thing that bugs me is when people say dinosaurs were around for, excluding birds, of course, in these texts, they would say dinosaurs were around for 160 million so your, years. It's your Kenneth Branagh voice or your... Yeah. <laughs> dinosaurs were around for 160 million years, but yet humans have only been around for 200,000 years. Yeah, that's because... You're talking about one species as opposed to like a million, you idiot. <laughs> so stupid. A lot of those dinosaurs were rubbish. They didn't last as long as humans. <laughs> um, of course, yeah, we're, we've only been around for a couple of thousand years, but um, we're like oh. a relatively young thing and there's no reason to think we're, <laughs> we haven't finished. We're not done yet. Well, and, uh, but of course, getting back to species concepts, what's the longevity <laughs> of such a thing? When was their last split? As far as we know. What, between us and uh, our most closely related hominins? Yeah. Us, us, us and um, the closest to us, like um, uh, uh, Neanderthals, I guess, are our sisters. Nah, that doesn't count. Well, that's, that's only like going back sort of like... Uh, yeah, but Neanderthals, I, are, Neanderthals are the same species. They are not. Oh, they species. so are. That's so stupid. No, they're not. They're no, they're a little subpopulation that split off a little bit early, but they got reintegrated and no, same species. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I beg to differ. <laughs> but, well, you're wrong. Wow. Is this, oh, we've just fallen back in a time hole, which is, is 1960, and there's two species of hominin, the Australopithecus and the Homo erectus, which evolved straight line into Homo sapiens. That's, uh, that's what you're going with there, because, nah. What? Just no, like, no. I'm saying they got they re they got reintegrated into the gene pool. Uh, some of them did. Yeah, into same species. species. They can interbreed say. and did same species. That's, that's not that's not what it means. You never think that, that as was, you know, that is the <laughs> most powerful species concept there is. All the others are kind of a bit like, well, I kind of think it's different enough, man. Okay. So donkeys and mules are the same species. Fertile offspring? On occasion. Mm. On occasion. Well, they're clearly splitting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, pretty much. The difference between anatomically, genetically, not going to go down the road of culture and stuff because that's a, a, a whole nest of vipers but um neanderthals are becoming more complex than what we learn about them but um um no i think i think there's there's good reasons for a, a strong case that neanderthals but on are, what basis morphological basis they're morphologically different the genetic because humans are pretty morphologically variable 
there's a bunch of features that are present in Neanderthals that aren't present in Homo sapiens. There's a bunch of features that are present in Homo sapiens that aren't present in Neanderthals. They look like good, good diagnostic species. And the fact that some of them interbred at some point in history, and probably not throughout the whole of their history, probably only right towards the end, about you know, 40,000, 30,000 years ago. Which makes when- it even more strong that they're not a separate species, because they still weren't reproductively isolated towards the end. The, no, the, if there was, okay. if there was, if it was like early Neanderthals were interbreeding, and then later ones weren't, but it's the later ones that were. I do not accept that the 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 fact that interbreeding occurred tells you anything important about what I regard as a species. So you're just, a morphological species person. Yeah, diagnostic species concept. Uh, because uh, we've we've covered this before. There are there are lineages that the that fossils and other lines of evidence as well show us have been separated for tens of millions of years that can still produce fertile offspring in some groups. And you're talking about organisms that are radically different. In, in everything, in you know, morphology, behavior, genetics, blah, 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 they can still interbreed. It's like, it's like interbreeding is the default setup system. It is. It's an accident that um, it becomes separated. Yeah. And it's like, like weird things that evolve later on in some lineages prevent it from happening. Weird things to do with like, you know, you evolve a narrow pelvis or you evolve a different number of chromosomes. But the default system is that interbreeding should occur. So in a group of animals like hominins, which are, you know, all of them are less than, like, I don't know, seven million years old. You should expect rampant um, hybridization to be the normal condition, as it is in other groups of animals that have radiated in that similar time frame. So, um, no, I think there are good re- there are good reasons for Neanderthals and other uh, similar hominin dust to to be distinct, and that is generally the consensus opinion these days. Uh, among everyone that works on this and as i've also said before in some ways given that species concepts are ultimately arbitrary um the best argument to be made is well what what, what does everyone else think what are we going with what, what where are we slapping the names on and if if it's more important to have um neanderthals as a separate species because that's what we're agreeing on then i think that's what we should what we should go for hang on hang on hang on that, that argument makes no sense but let's move on that makes total sense. What? Because everyone's doing sense. it. Because everyone's doing it. If it's arbitrary, if it's if if a species concept is arbitrary, which it is given the fact of evolution, then where do we draw the lines? We draw the lines where we say that we draw the lines. And if we've decided that the anatomical and genetic difference between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals is enough for them to be a species, then so be it. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, cast for question. This is another one from Sam. <laughs> the terran that colours some birds' eyes red was also found in fish skin, as you'd know, Darren. Yeah. Is this the ancestral condition, or did they pick it up? And when? Uh, okay, I should have done some homework on this, because I don't know the first thing about <laughs> the heterocyclic compound composed of a pteridine ring system, so known as... Uh, uh, Terran, yeah, I, I don't know anything about that. But um, my answer, uh, yeah, my my gut feeling is that given that Terran has been dis- is present all over the place in the Tree of Life, for example, it's uh, it's prevalent in uh, uh, butterfly wings, uh, for example. Nothing. <laughs> damn this, damn this Wikipedia article is useless. <laughs> I bet you, I bet you that this evolved all over the place because it's not like. 
Um, is Terran? I mean, Terran. That 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 name sounds like it should be associated with red for some reason, <laughs> but it's not. No, it's a. Uh... Yep. Maybe look. I'll try and remember to read up on that and come back to it. But um, seems like um, one of those things where. Um, we'll probably get tripped up by whether it's um, ancestral or whether it's just sort of easily evolved from something else and therefore keeps popping up. Yeah, because the first thing I did is to see if it's present in the skin of non-bird reptiles. Um, and yeah, it's present in some lizards. There are studies pointing to its presence in... Uh, unusually pigmented parts of lizard skin, like you know, brightly, brightly um, coloured dewlaps and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm getting the impression here that it's a thing like carotenoid. It's like been evolved uh, multiple times due to specific metabolic pathways and how animals sequester compounds from whatever they eat and stuff. That's my. That's my. <laughs> That's my... Chemistry questions, people, really? <clears throat> yeah, thanks for that, Sam. Good one. Yeah. <laughs> Haven't we bumbled these enough that people will stop asking us about chemistry? Mm. That's news from the world of news. <laughs> that was not news from the world of news, was it? Oh, that was okay. a cash for question. Okay, cash question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about Tezucon. Yeah, yeah. Um, this year, year of our Lord, twenty seventeen, <laughs> will be the fourth Tetrapodology convention, popularly known as Tezucon. We have uh, reached peak Tetsuconery at previous our previous venue, the London Wetland Centre, and therefore have um, upgraded to. A new venue for this year. So um, on Saturday, the 21st of October, the best people in the world will be at uh, the venue, as it's known. <laughs> the place is actually called The Venue at Mallet Street in central London. So Saturday, October 21st, Ma- uh, Mallet Street, uh, Tezucon 2017. The venue seats just shy of 200 people, so over 150. So... I believe we're already selling tickets. Yep. We've got the website up, which is at tetsu.com, and click on the TetsuCon option at the top. We have a lovely new banner that John designed yesterday. And um, tickets are selling at an exponential rate. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, it's exponential yeah. in some specs. I'm sure there's a mathematical definition that conforms to my... Yeah. Uh, I'd yeah. draw a graph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if we sell two today, it will indeed be exponent. That's um geometric. Damn, you've got to put a log- logarithmic scale on that for that to be. It uh- is logarithmic. Oh, okay, but you didn't put a scale on it. L. Okay. Um. So. Okay, uh, I'm in the process, we <laughs> are in the process of, uh, yeah, sorting out speakers. We've already got a, a complete, a full schedule. As per previous years, there's going to be a brilliant paleo art workshop. Yep, big plans which, uh, for that. Yeah, looking forward to that. I I think I'm, I think, should I say one of the speakers? 
What does be good? Sure, if, if they're confirmed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Darren Nash. <laughs> no, um, no, God, not him. He's terrible. Um, Beth, Beth Windle. We'll be talking about thylacines. Cool. And those of you who are engaged in the same social media sphere as I do will probably already be familiar with uh, Beth and her fantastic artwork and uh, her great love of hyenas as well as um, thylacines. Um, yeah. So that's all coming together and look forward to it. It is definitely going to be the biggest so far. So, um, yeah, there you go. Tezuk on 2017. Do we need to say anything else? Oh, tickets are 50 quid. Yep. Which is the same as last time. We have talked a lot about the possibility of like discounts and all that sort of stuff, but uh, I don't know. I don't want to, don't want to say too much about it. Cause again, it feels, makes me feel like I need a shower afterwards, but it's like, we can't, we need that money to cover costs. We are not doing the Demi Moore thing, rolling around on the bed in the, <laughs> in the money, or at least not in public. And, um, not in public. Uh, no, that's not right. It's wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, in some ways, yeah. Well, that's, I appreciate that, that, for a lot of people that is, that's real money. Of course it is. But if you look at the cost of, um, single day events anywhere, they all cost more than this. So Crops, yeah, we yeah. do try to keep it, keep it as low as we can because we want as many people who can come to come, obviously. Uh, I have made the mistake on social media of telling people that I'll, I'll look into a student discount, but the, the 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 thing is, the thing is that in our the sort of people that come to a thing like Tetsuokan student, student for the rich, <laughs> I think it's best to say that is the student discount. There's only the student discount. Also, I have a problem with giving student discounts and not discounts to people who might be no longer students. But really struggling. So, yeah, we've priced as low as we can. There we go. So we look forward to seeing as many of you as possible, and uh, it's gotten bigger and better year on year. So, uh, all right. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Obviously, like we we talk about this sometimes, but yeah. Um, if we if it continues to get bigger, we'd really like to move to a two day event so that you know it might be worth travelling further for. Mm. Um, that would be great. That's our ultimate sort of. Goal for Tetsukon, right? Yeah. Have a like a three hundred person two day event. That'd be great. Yeah. 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 Multi day multi day event. Multi day event. Multiple. Let's not limit it to two. <laughs> Multiple concurrent. <laughs> no. No. Always single session. Single. <laughs> single stream. They call it. I kind of like that. I, like, I kind of like those conferences where you end up not going to any talks and just spend all the time in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> You can no. do that in a single stream. What? You can, you can, you can, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we need a proper bar. That, that, that's that's the thing to aim for. Well, you know, well, the venue, it's actually, there's a bar right there. Yes. Yes. Right. I'm Darren's the not talk. going to Zucon this year. The first, talk. the first talk was normally mine, for those who thought that was rude. Should we move on to the next thing in the agenda, which uh, is titled... Yeah. Yes. Popular tat. Popular tat. You know, I've seen Westworld now. Ah. The whole series? Yes. You say that again? Yes. Yes. So it went quiet then. And? Did you like it? Ah. Uh, are we going to talk about Westworld? Well, briefly. Why are we talking about that briefly? 
And the rest of your bloody things are just trailers, aren't they? <laughs> no, we're not talking about them. We are not we talking. Are. No, we're not. No, we're not. No, we're not. I'm going to edit it out. <laughs> we're going to talk about something we've actually both seen to the end, which is Westworld. The trailer. The trailer. No. What the hell? You've got Logan on here? And the dead Isn't that isn't that a superhero prequel trailer? <laughs> it's not, it's not. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> um, <laughs> the film Logan is Logan is out. I don't I don't care. Superheroes? <laughs> We're never talking about superheroes ever again. And it's scoring ninety four percent of Rotten Tomatoes. Oh my god. This is really good. It's mm. not. It's a superhero film. And in the Deadpool 2 teaser, oh <laughs> he walks past the cinema. Right, Westworld. <laughs> Westworld. Right. right. Um, the, the, main, the main thing that I wanted to talk about Westworld was the difference between... Because, okay, have you seen the film? The, the, the film the, based on the Michael Crichton book? Uh, no, no, the- I haven't actually. I haven't seen the original, no. Okay, this is sounding familiar. Little Shop of Horrors. Um... I okay. have no. I saw the original Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, I we, saw the original. Original. You saw a remake <laughs> and declared that the original. <laughs> and when we went to talk about Little Shop of Horrors, it was, oh, we haven't seen the thing that allows you to talk about the thing. It's similar to Westworld. It was like, um, okay, most people that I know have seen Westworld the movie. Mm. So when there's a TV series, it's like they set the TV series up to basically run through the story of the film. I haven't read the book, a bit of a philistine. My thinking, so you, there's these characters in it. You think, oh, they're going to be the same as the character in the movie. But the TV series destroyed those expectations. It took the characters on a... Almost always, not completely always, but almost always a completely different path. And it went above and beyond and did lots of extra stuff. And uh, I thought it was really quite strong. Um, it had uh, quite a good storyline. It had good characters. And they did stuff that you didn't expect. And like I say, okay, so you haven't seen the movie. I, I think you're in the minority in terms of people that watch the TV series. I think most people that saw the TV series knew what they were going to expect from some of the characters. And then it didn't pan out that way. It was like, ha-ha, curveball. Yeah. I would say the majority of people, I might even go with the majority of people having seen the film, but I wouldn't go with the majority of people actually remembering what most of the characters did. No, you're wrong. Check out Yul Brenner. Google Yul Brenner right what? now. And Yul Brenner, okay, uh, um, Westworld the movie is Jurassic Park. I know what it is. Except, I know the, yeah. Go except ahead. instead of genetically created dinosaurs it's robot cowboys and your brenner is the tyrannosaurus rex except you instead of- yeah okay rex. so they might remember the the but you hang out with nerds too much ask your average person that's seen jurassic park ask your average person that's seen jurassic park about any of the characters in jurassic park and ask them what they remember about them they will remember virtually nothing about any of them jurassic park yeah. I remember the characters in Jurassic Park. I was talking about dinosaurs. Okay. Ask them about the dinosaurs, and they'll say, which one was that? <laughs> the only one they'll remember is Tyrannosaurus. Like that, but that's all I... But, but no, you're not even listening to me, Totally Conway. listening. The, 
in Westworld the <laughs> it's movie, not it's to. the same. Okay, Westworld the movie. Listen yeah. to me, Westworld the movie. Two guys from our time, and the film was made in like I don't know, nineteen seventy nine or whatever. But yeah. two guys from our time dress up as cowboys, go to a theme park. They want to do some rootin' tootin' shooting, and then there's a bad dude, a bad cowboy dude, and he wears black and he's got a hat and he's really good with his gun and stuff. And he is merciless, and he's and you can't beat him in a fight because he's so good. And he tracks you down. He's an unsolvable mofo, and you've got to kill him, but you can't because he's too strong. That's the Tyrannosaurus Rex of uh-huh. Westworld, right? Yeah. That's that. It's not very complicated, and the robots malfunction partway through the film, and it turns out that you can trick the Yorbrenner cowboy dude if you shine a f- flaming torch in his face because the oh spoilers the light, by the way, sorry spoilers. <laughs> the light confuses his robot senses, which is uncannily similar to the. It's visions based on movement stuff from Jurassic Park and the Tyrannosaurus Rex, you see. So that's my point. It's like when they introduced um, uh, Westworld, the TV series, and now such a long time ago, I've forgotten at least some of the characters. But um, yeah, you, you, you were led to think that the man in black, and we learned a lot about him as the series went on, but you were led to think that he was the Yul Brenner character. And of course he wasn't. It was There was all this additional, there was this different tangent on on his on his character and he turned out to be i like the fact that that it, that it the focus was actually on other characters that you thought that you thought were just going to be his playthings or um his his victims um the the, the dolores the dolores story i um i liked where that went yeah okay so let's talk about the sci-fi in this a little bit mm. because it has like a lot of these shows it all looks very slick, and it is done in a very nice style. Mm. But I spend a lot of time thinking about how they run... Maybe this is just my obsession, but how they're running that park makes no sense to me. Mm. They, And it seems inconsistent. Yes. So when the robots get damaged, yep. they come in for repair. Yeah. But they see, there seems to be only one of each robot. Why don't you have 50 of each robot so you can just swap them in and out? Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm spent, I spent a lot of the time during the series thinking, why is there only one of this? Why, why do they do this? And repairing the robots seems like it would be a lot harder than they make out. They just seem to get me and they're done. Which, okay, if they were made from some sort of self-organizing polymer or something, which is kind of what they hint about with the later robots. But the early robots are just metal and stuff, right? You see that later on in the series. The Dolores mm. is actually just, like, got metal and stuff inside her. Like, she's mm-hmm. actually, a, you know, a metal robot. She's not 3D printed or anything. Mm. And bullet damage to something like that would be, would be really difficult to repair. Yeah. Yeah, plus... Uh, well, they, I think they probably had to, uh, this is not, obviously not talking about canon, but the reason that they went with that in the storyline was that was their key driving thing. The fact that they had to have the, the fact they had, the fact that the robots had to have a memory that, that was real reawakened. And, um, mm. uh, the, now the, the, as a sci-fi writer, the way mm. I would have got around this is that they've got 50 bodies, but what they do is they back up their 
their mind to the server, and then that's yeah. just inserted into the new bodies every time they need to replace one of them because it's damaged. Mm, why didn't they think of that? Well, I think they do think of this, but think <clears throat> that no one will notice the problem. And so it's, it complicates the story. They have to put in some extra little explanation, and therefore they just don't bother. They think no one will care. But I do care, and it ruins the drama for me to a certain extent. Yeah. Mm. And the, re- the recycling of individual models individual uh, units as well for different retooling them retasking them for different jobs like this particular robot he's been working as this farmhand for 30 years but before that he was he was the gunslinger you know that sort of thing um yeah especially when they had whole rooms full of like redundant ones that yeah Mm. plus and remember as well we're also uh um made to think in the the last or penultimate episode that's only that's only one world of several that are running at the same time because um we see samurai world and um i think possibly a couple of others as well don't know if you call that yeah but um, it's definitely meant to be one park of several they must have a lot of space put aside for that whole project because that was that was a genuine <laughs> like huge wilderness. I mean, when you saw like the topographical like maps from the uh, when they're looking at like a projection on a table or something, it's it's big. It's you know like a, a national park style size. Yeah, yeah, space. Um, and I guess that's what they hint at as well during the show is that all this is too expensive <clears throat> to just be a theme park. This you know, the, the the money flowing in from the theme park couldn't possibly be enough to justify this expense. So there's something mm. else going on. Because even if you've got people paying a million a million a go, yeah, that that amount of land, those robots, the whole support infrastructure is way too complicated for that. Way too expensive, you would think. Um, yeah. So overall. I liked it, and obviously it was quite compelling, and I watched it a lot, and in a binge, so we watched the whole lot. But yeah, like a lot of these things, I felt the sci-fi let it down a little bit. I think they could have done a better job with the sci-fi. And yeah, a lot of the drama is kind of crisis-focused rather than building, although it did have building drama in it as well, which I did like. I liked the robot Epiphany, which was primarily driven by uh, what she called Maud. The um, uh, what she called I've forgotten her name. Um, you know the the whole thing with the realization that the the fact that there has to I thought there was going to be like a singularity, a point when the robots collectively uprise, yeah, undergo an uprising because uh, they realize that, or or a few characters have led them to. This is this is what's happening, and you, but you had that happening with a, with a small band of characters, led by um, Maud. What do you call what do you call the? There's a name. There's a name for the woman who's in charge of a group of prostitutes. A madam. A madam. Yeah. Um, oh God, I've forgotten her name. Her actual name. <clears throat> um, well, anyone yeah, like that's that. watched the show will know who we're talking about. And if you haven't yeah, you watched know. the show, why are you even listening to this? Yeah, stop listening. <laughs> <laughs> So um, it's been it's been months since I've seen Westworld. I saw it when it was on, so I've forgotten all the interesting things I wanted to say at the time. Mm-hmm. So so thanks, thanks, mm-hmm. John. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, yeah, um, I thought I thought the bit the bit at the 
possibly last episode, possibly penultimate episode, when Maud and the group that she's persuaded to to leave Westworld with her, I thought that was exceptionally lame because um, so you you've got a theme park where there's a whole load of like uh, sentient killer robots who are probably stronger than normal people and there's and they potentially can be super armed and everything you are probably going to have security like like security protocol things that cannot be overridden that there's going to be some way that there's no way 100% guarantee we 100% guarantee that our robots can't escape the park or something and they got out into the compound so they're in they're in the like you know the lavish sort of you know modern stuff where the labs are and everything and they're just walking around and they're like you know killing all all the security guards and stuff and she escapes in the lift she actually gets out to the the surface i mean obviously that has to happen for the story and i think a lot of these things the reason you know what you're saying about the sci-fi not being the best maybe is because they are driven by story on this thing more than these concerns but but that as a as a thing that like that's so dumb that's so dumb yeah well i think one thing westworld is always playing with is is this meant to be happening is this actually a plan of someone that's up high enough that this sort of stuff was meant to happen because the obvious thing is that maybe they're like training them to be you know or they're testing them out to be super weapons of some sort right um and this is actually a test of the robots can they get out of this place Oh, I see, yeah. I think that's kind of what they're hinting at. Although I've been burned by that in shows. You think, oh, they're building something clever, and, and no, no, they just totally weren't. They were, Did you ever watch... Have we, have we mentioned Lost before? Oh, yeah, Lost. Lost. I mean, really, come on. And um, mm. and I think Battlestar Galactica suffered from this somewhat, right? Well, I never saw that. Didn't you? No. Yeah, you should watch Battlestar Galactica, but stop watching after Series 2. Yeah, um, I've seen your little graph. Yes, but Battlestar Galactica is really good. I mean, really. He good. says. <laughs> Up until you realise this isn't really going anywhere. But it doesn't need to go anywhere. That's the point. I mean, just the initial setup and the drama is good enough. Um, it's not like they're trying to set up a big mystery, although they do kind of get into that and then do stupid bloody. Um, it must be difficult for people that write these things because they they want they often want something to you know go somewhere they do have an idea but then they also know they've got to create some big cliffhanger so that funding will come in for the next season yeah and that's why you have these stupid things that, don't, that are sometimes made up on the spot and don't make any sense now they'll just throw in an extra character and throw in some extra mystery I am I was a big yeah hmm? sorry go ahead you're a big fan of. I was a big fan of the Sarah Connor Chronicles, and I think I think Tony and I were the only people that watched it. And like, um, I can't remember if I had more than one season. It might have had, I don't know, whatever. The end, the end of the season, the last episode ever. They'd introduced this new character, um, Weaver, who was didn't seem like a very pleasant person, but then it turned out she was a polymimetic alloy terminator and um and it turned out she was actually although she'd been really horrible oh the last episode oh it turned out she's actually doing stuff to save them and she does something that saves them from assassination and then they're like why did you do that and she's like come with me and i'll show you and then it finishes and it's <laughs> like and, th- and that was the last episode ever and they so transparently did that just to, oh this whole this character you've had all the way through uh i could say similar things about agents uh, agents of shield uh, what they did with grant's character but, uh, and the fact they've got him frozen in that Cuba jelly. I missed the last episode of the previous season. I uh, am strongly of the opinion that all these shows that are meant to have an arc should have a fixed run. 
So they should say, this this show is running for three seasons. That's what we're yeah. going to run it for. Okay, you can have your cliffhangers, so you can write to have your cliffhangers at the end of each season, but you're going to wrap it up in three seasons. Because yeah. it's so much of this writing is, what if this just keeps going forever? Mm. We've got mm-hmm. to keep injecting new mysteries that won't be resolved if we get cut off. But, yeah. And so the best yeah. ones, the best ones are often things where the the length of the run is known, right? Babylon 5. Um, Babylon 5 was written in one block by, oh, whichever one of them, Berman, Pillar, Taylor, one of those guys, but but Berman, Pillar, whatever. Um, And, um, yeah, and uh, they they did that. They had it like, this is what's going to happen, this is how each season's going to happen, and there's going to be this many seasons, and that's it. And uh, and I, I think it kind of worked. Uh, Babylon 5 was often quite I don't want to say boring because if you li- if you like it you liked it and it wasn't boring but it was for a niche you know sort of trekker audience um, and um, and I, I think a similar thing it's probably good that they've declared that the next season of Game of Thrones is I believe going to be the last yep. so they've so please wrap up these bloody storylines. They are they are experts, <laughs> and I know George R. R. Martin himself is the same, having read some of the books. But just experts at just never resolving anything. Deliberately, deliberately never resolve anything. Leave everything open. <laughs> so we might come back to that one day, but we might forget it, get bored. It depends whether you like the character or not, really. Um, so yeah. come on. Z- uh, ice zombies and giant dragons a big fight at the end everybody dies and one of the kids or something is left in charge with a new direwolf puppy bish bash bosh the end um. <laughs> just hire Darren he can just write this stuff for you yeah, yeah. yeah. I went to see George R. R. Martin but he was busy <laughs> That was at the Worldcon. <laughs> you just turn up at his house? No, at Worldcon. Uh-huh. And he was True story. Yeah. yeah. Cool story, bro. Right, so uh, the bit... Briefly, don't get mm-hmm. funny with me. The Skull... Kong Skull Island. Oh, God. Kong's like the trailer. Wait, okay, look, look. I want to see some more of this. Look. That's my impression of John. That wasn't me having a tantrum. <laughs> that was totally you having a tantrum. <laughs> they've done some good stuff. Skull Island. All right, they've they've like there's a million million different creatures on Skull Island, and they've gone for the whole Vietnam era thing, and it's like sort of Kong in Vietnam kind of stuff. But that's basically all I want to say about it. They deliberately haven't put in like dinosaurs and things. It's kind of weird new creatures, and Kong looks nothing like a gorilla. Sort of, well, he's kind of got a gorilla's face, but proportion like a giant stocky person. Uh, it's a man Gojira. in a suit, Darren, that's why. Man. <laughs> it's just a big man in a suit. Um, Shin Gojira or Godzilla uh, Resurgence, we should talk about that at some point. Oh, God, is, is, this the, like, uh, is this the sequel to that terrible Godzilla film? No, no, no. It's a brand new Japanese Godzilla movie, and bear with me here, because it's interesting. Oh, do I have to... Yes, they've they've done a a take on they've done they've like forget about the pre-existing Godzilla movies. Imagine that the original Godzilla of Honda's fifty fifty four 
version was made now and imagine how you would make it as striking now as they tried to make with the original Godzilla film Shin Gojira is horrible the creature is disgusting and offensive and vile and it goes through several different metamorphoses and it's just horrific and really horrible and weird stuff happens and for a long for a long time I thought I really don't like this and I don't want to see this film because it's horrible it's gross it's disturbing the more I've learned about it the more I've thought about it and Will and I talk about it quite a lot it's like I think they've deliberately made it weird and gross and horrible because they want to evoke the the like the horror and spectacle of the original film I think that's what they've done so um it's just it's weird and uh they've gone for a totally different design on Godzilla Godzilla itself its origin and stuff is different it's uh it's like composed of like microorganisms that have been mutated and amalgamated into some giant creature and there are these disgusting transformation sequences and uh, yeah so i think it's an interesting take on godzilla and i i kind of do want to see it now even though i do think it's kind of gross so there you go okay or godzilla resurgence we are allowed to talk about these films once we've seen them but talking about them from trailers is just like what's the point yeah, Given I mean, how misled we've been by trailers, I just like. I'm I'm not just going from trailers on Shingo Jiro. There's so much of it leaked online now that uh, you can say you've basically seen the film. Okay, but there you go. That's we've been talking for a long time now. Good luck with the editing. Yeah, with all those starts and stops. Stops and starts. God, the stuff we're having to deal with here. <gasps> um, your constant coughing. Um, so Tetsuya Khan. I, oh, Oxford Literary Festival. What's today? Today's the 7th of March. Oxford Literary Festival comes up real soon. One of the days. Um, I'm giving a talk next week at Manchester Metropolitan University about fossil birds or something. And then, oh, I haven't written it down, you idiot. Okay. Oxford Literary Festival, I'm giving a talk on one of the days, I think it's like 25th of March, about um, um, Hunting Monsters, my cryptozoology book. Uh-huh. So uh, I hope to see some of you there. Uh, Tetsuocon, you know all about that. Yep. Come along. Um, I'm on Twitter. So I'm getting that reverb thing in. Uh-huh. Twitter at... Oh, come on. How could you know my father? I don't even know who I am. Oh, I don't know what I'm doing here. Wasting our time. <laughs> I can teach him. <laughs> the boy has new patience. Ah, oh, good old whiny Luke. <laughs> uh, there's it really a was a pretty ru- bold move putting such a whiny character in the middle of that film, wasn't it? Well, when you see the um, uh, the auditions for like the first movie he does have a genuine um improvisational ality that, that um that's obviously what what they, they were looking for because uh there's there's kind of there's an honesty and a boyishness that i guess is what lucas wanted yeah oh it's good i um, mean yeah i think having luke being whiny in star wars was actually was actually good it made it a, well made the f- yeah this characters feel more real but this whiny thing is only like so, okay. So I've only heard it in recent years. It's like people didn't ever didn't didn't ever mention it until recently. 
Um, because Tony's the same. She she hates Luke because she <laughs> thinks all that. Oh, he's such a whingy little one. Well, ah, uh, yeah. You know what? You know planet. what? You know what it is. Like we all watched as kids. We didn't realize he was like a grown up. He was like eighteen or something, man. Yeah. And we didn't realize he was so whiny and annoying. We didn't realize he was a whiny kid until we got old enough to realize that he was a whiny kid. I like the fact there's lots of stuff in Star Wars that, like, only when you think about it now, it's like, what? That, really? So, like, okay, so Luke says uh, to um, his uncle on Tatooine that um, he wants to he wants to go and fly. He wants to go and train in the academy along with Biggs and Tammy as buddies. And they're like, academy? What? What? What academy? What? There's there's like presumably do you mean the imperial academy <laughs> so, well who's gonna join the empire has has uh, i could be wrong maybe it's another academy yeah like there's the tatooine flight like, academy right yeah. 16 flight squad over beggars canyon or something but no i'm sure he meant he wants to he wants to train for the empire so there should be some some uh, alternative universe stuff <laughs> oh, God, <no. laughs> yeah alternative universe where luke becomes dark and has a robot hand. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you interrupted me. Yeah, so uh, no, actually, props to Mark Hamill there for making a whiny character watchable because what's his name in the in the movies that shall not be named was virtually unwatchable. <laughs> yeah, that, that unforgettable actor. That guy. The kid. <laughs> oh, God. No, not the little kid. Oh, sorry. I don't mind the little kid. I didn't know why everyone hated on him so much. No, Yippee! no. I mean the um, I mean older when he was older. Who? Luke. Anakin. Oh, him. Hmm. Unforgettable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I actually watched Revenge of the Sith last night. <laughs> you watched what now? Revenge of the Sith. I never heard of it. <laughs> the one with um, uh, General Grievous in it. <laughs> oh my god! I've talked about this before, haven't I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't just name them like that. <laughs> I know. Sorry. Sorry. <clears throat> right. Yeah. I, you know, I've never seen the uh, third of the uh, films that should not be named. <laughs> Because <laughs> I just thought, I just just can't do it anymore. You'll love it. You'll love it. I'm going to strap you down in a chair, tape your eyes open, and make you watch it. Count Dooku managed to escape from your grip. Um, think yourself lucky that you're not in my grip. Wrong emphasis. <laughs> Sorry. Some people know what I'm talking about. No one else does. <clears throat> right. It is a volcanic planet. Um, I run a blog called Hedgepods already, currently hosted at Scientific American. And, yeah, I, come on. <laughs> what are they doing to my site? What are they doing? It's just terrible. I really listened to about Ampispanians. The comments, what a mess. <laughs> <laughs> and all their stringent rules on copyright and stuff. <laughs> no, you can't just use stuff from other people's books. Oh, why not? This is blogging. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, in that aim, in that end, even uh, support me on Patreon, please. I'm at www.patreon.com forward slash tetzu. 
thank you very much to those who support me. It's really appreciated. John, I believe, is also on Patreon. Yep. Patreon.com forward slash John Conway. And I'm the John Conway on Twitter. And my website is johnconway.co. Okay. And everyone should support us on Patreon because we're stuck. We're stuck. You're stuck on, what, 100? Uh, just over 100. Yeah. And I hover around 80. Come on, people. Mm. I've run out of, run out of patrons. <laughs> there aren't enough people in the world. There's, come on, where are those? There's got to be a few millionaires out there that are vaguely interested. Not just all these starving students who can't afford $5 a month or whatever. <clears throat> <laughs> well, yeah. Mm. Well, it is, because that's the people that do all the supporting. It's typical of everything. It's like the people that actually... Uh, let's just stop there. <laughs> Damn those millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> Shaking my fist. Okay. Right. We done? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Although, okay, so right, stop somewhere there. A reading from Monster of the Mere by Jonathan Downs. This, apparently, was Dazza. He was neither geriatric or mentally handicapped as far as we could see. And then, at last, we could see no reason why he would be living in a place which was obviously dedicated to serving the needs of the more vulnerable members of the Yeovil community. It was only half an hour later when his girlfriend appeared that everything became clear. She was one of the most stunningly beautiful young women that I've ever seen, and she couldn't have been more than 17. But she was also equally, obviously, how does one put it in words that are going to be acceptable to the politically correct of my readers? <laughs> Several sandwiches short of a picnic. It turned out that it was her flat. She, despite her beauty, was obviously well within the targeted client group of the place, and Dazza was her boyfriend. It also became very obvious very quickly that he was not only living in her flat, but that he was using it <laughs> as a base <laughs> for a flourishing drug dealing operation. The house was spotlessly clean and furnished with exquisitely tacky bad taste. From my knowledge of things, having worked for some years as the assistant team leader in a group home for the handicapped, I know only too well that whoever it is who has the job of furnishing and decorating these places, they have absolutely no taste whatsoever. The wallpaper and soft furnishings were garishly coloured and clashed appallingly. Whoever the purchasing department of the local council were, they obviously had never heard of the slightest Zen concept of providing a harmonious and peaceful environment for people with emotional and mental problems. Just staring for five minutes at the clashing colours and the ugly furniture came... <laughs> gave me the beginning of a headache. God only knows what effect it would have on some poor mentally handicapped girl who had to live there. My house is too small and has too much stuff in it. But I don't think I've ever seen so much tacky rubbish packed into such a small, small place in my life. <laughs> I've often wondered who it is that actually buys all the overpriced commemorative plates and collectible porcelain figurines that are sold through the colour supplements of the Sunday newspapers. Now I knew, everywhere you looked, there were display cabinets full of collectible china thimbles, portraits of Elvis painted in day-glow paint on black velvet, 
Porcelain kittens sporting sycophantic grins and plates commemorating the high spots of 40 years of Coronation Street. 